we will be reading verses 14 through 17 this morning. Hear now the word of God. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons and he cast out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we see you at work today, loving people and reaching out. Would you help us to take inspiration from that, Lord? Would you help us to see your love for people today in this passage, and would you help us to go and do likewise? Would you work the same love in us that we might share it with others? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So last, last week in our text, Jesus had come down from the mountain, and there were great crowds following Jesus, and you may remember the leper came as well. And what did Jesus do? Jesus physically healed this man, but he also reminded him of the importance of the law of Moses. And he told him, he said, go and be examined by the priest. He said, my ministry is not one that is is here to overturn the law. Instead, I'm here to fulfill the law. And he put that into practice in his instructions to that man. And then we saw how he showed grace to this Gentile, to this centurion, by healing his servant physically. Now, this morning, Jesus' ministry continues, and he does something we're going to see repeatedly throughout his ministry. We're going to see this, the healing ministry, where he shows grace to people who are physically suffering. And so Jesus does two important things in this passage. First, he addresses the effects of sin on the body. And second, you'll see this, he addresses the effects of sin on the soul. So Jesus focuses on the body and he focuses on the soul, not one to the exclusion of the other. We do make a mistake if we become so, um, I'm trying to think of the right term for it. The term I'm going to use is rationalistic. So rationalistic that we forget what we see in the second part of this passage, that we live in a world full of wonders and terrors. Demons are real. Uh, Evil spirits are real. Um, If we become, and we can easily, I'm certainly guilty of this, become so focused on our rationalistic approach to the world around us and and so focused on physical, tangible things, it is easy for us to forget or ignore the spiritual matters that lie behind the darkness of our world. And and when we do that, we're sort of like a person whose car breaks down and thinks that he just isn't pushing hard enough on the gas pedal, right? We, we start to realize there's something behind all of this, and we're neglecting it. Uh, we have to understand there is a world of reality, spiritual reality, behind the things that are going on around us. It's very easy to be imbalanced, right? On the one hand, we could be very all-rationalism, and we can forget the spiritual. And it's possible for us to be all-spiritual and forget that we live in a physical world where... Uh, What happens to our body also impacts our soul. 
Uh, It's possible to overcorrect or favor one over the other. And we need to be very careful that if we're so spiritually focused, we ignore the hard realities of the world around us. We need to know that if we do that, we have also gone wrong. We end, up, we end up sort of being like the person that James talks about. You remember James, how in James chapter 2, he says, hey, there are some people who see someone suffering, and what do they do? They say, go in peace, be warm, be filled, without giving them the things needed for the body. What good is that, James says? And we can be like that, right? We can be so spiritual. We say, hey, I'm going to tell you the gospel, and see you, fella. And even though there are needs there. Um, now, before we begin looking at this aspect of Jesus' ministry, it occurs to me I need to address something, and that is what the Bible actually says about human beings, because uh, what makes us up? What are we? Because uh, I'm going to focus this morning on how Jesus ministers to the whole person, body and soul. And so we need to understand what does it mean for a human being to be body and soul? What, What do we mean by that? You find the first sort of instance of this in Genesis 2. God is breathing his breath into Adam. And the Hebrew says that he breathed the breath of life. And and in doing this, what happens? Adam, it says, the text says, became a living creature. And so in this strict sense, there's a good definition here of what humans are. We're living creatures. We are creatures because we have bodies, because we are made by God. We're created. That makes us creatures. But the, but the text also says we're living. And the thing that makes us living is different than the things that makes the other creatures walking around and doing what they do. We are living in a way that's different from the animals because we're given the breath of God. And so we have a spiritual dimension that's inseparable from who we are. Um, the Bible tells us that human beings are body and soul. Uh, In the Greek, the the word for soul is the word, we sort of use the word psyche. It's not how you'd say it probably in the Greek. You'd say suke, probably. And then we don't really know how these languages are supposed to sound, so we're kind of guessing a little bit when you're talking about how it verbally sounds out loud. Um, But then interchangeably, Scripture will say that we're body and soul. It'll use the word body, uh, it'll use the word, uh, sorry, body and spirit. Sometimes it'll say body and spirit. Sometimes it'll say body and soul. The Greek word for spirit is the word pneuma. If you've ever heard of a pneumatic drill, a pneumatic drill has air inside of it, and that is what makes it do what it does. And that's as much as I can tell you about pneumatic drills, by the way. Uh, <laughs> um, but the, the word spirit is the word, it's the word breath, right? It's the word for, 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 for wind, for breath, spirit. And the New Testament uses both of these words to describe us. Look at Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, he says, we should not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Right? What is he, Jesus doing? He's, he's summing up what makes a human being. A human being is, is composed of these two ideas of body and soul. In 1 Corinthians seven thirty four, Paul says that the unmarried woman is able to be more thoughtful about how to be holy in body and spirit. There he uses the word spirit to describe uh, what a human being is. He's talking about the whole person, right? How to be holy completely. Uh, James 2.26 says the body apart from the spirit is dead. And so the Bible uses these words, spirit and soul, uh, uses the words interchangeably. 
If you look through the rest of Scripture, you see sometimes the Bible says that spiritual activity happens because of the soul or the the psyche is the Greek word. Or sometimes it says it's the spirit or the pneuma. Uh, Five five or six times when people die, it says that their soul was surrendered. Uh, Five times the text says their spirit was surrendered. Um, Sometimes the dead in Scripture are called souls. Sometimes they're called spirits. Um, We have uh, one immaterial aspect, sometimes called the soul, sometimes called the spirit. Now, this doesn't mean that God always means the exact same thing with these words. I say he uses the words interchangeably. It doesn't mean they have identical meaning. Uh, When when the scripture uses the word spirit, what is God doing? He's he's emphasizing that we're different from the animals. We didn't come from the earth. We, We have the breath of God in us. And yet we're also distinct from the spirit of God. Uh, We have a spirit, but it's not God's spirit necessarily inhabiting all human beings. When God says that we're souls, what is he doing? He's saying that humans also have a spiritual component to them, that that we can reach up to God, that we can worship him, that we can lift our hearts up to him. Um, Each of these words is meant to say something special about human beings, but they're not meant to say, therefore, we have different parts to our immaterial aspect right together the words body and soul and spirit form the whole picture of what it means to be a human being we are living creatures scripture says people are complex right because we're fearfully and wonderfully made but we also shouldn't make the mistake of thinking that we're so complex that we can't use simple language to describe us we are simple we focus on the needs of the body, and we have the needs of the soul. In that sense, we're simple, at least. I want to suggest today that that's what Jesus does. Jesus has a physical ministry. He has a spiritual ministry. He ministers to both. He doesn't focus on the one to the exclusion of the other. Jesus is ministering spiritually where needed and physically where needed. And so let's just move into the text and see how Jesus ministers to body and soul this morning. Uh, First, we see that Jesus ministers to the body. Look how he does this in verses 14 to 15. It's very straightforward. It says, when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand and the fever left her and she rose and began to serve him. So in the, in the late 1990s, archaeologists were working near this small fishing village in Capernaum in the land of Israel. And what they found was very startling. What they found was a building that had eight walls. And, and it was a large building. And inside of that building, they found a small circular building. And the building on the site was from the first century. The smallest building, the inner building was the smallest one. And it had stood for 300 years before the larger octagon-shaped building had been built up around it around 400 AD. So during the Byzantine era, they would build octagon-shaped church buildings around locations that were believed to be of historic significance. And so that's what this building was doing here. In this case, archaeologists believe that the inner building was Peter's house in Capernaum, and that it was used for church gatherings for 300 years before the larger building got put up around it. Um, And we know some things about this house through the archaeological work. This house was, it had coarse walls, uh, not smooth walls. They were were coarse walls. It had a a roof of earth and straw. 
Um, the walls had been plastered, which was unusual for that day. But the walls also had something interesting on them. They had Christian graffiti. Uh, we don't do a lot of Christian graffiti in here. I don't, please don't take this as permission to do this. Um, but people, people scratched things into the walls of this house. They wrote things such as, Christ, have mercy. Uh, another person wrote, Lord Jesus, help thy servant. And this building lasted 300 years before it was replaced. But I guess the thing that's remarkable is that besides the plastered walls and besides the graffiti, this was otherwise a typical first century house. Um, you can actually Google it sometime. I always have to say this, not right now. You can Google it sometime. Um, but you can look up pictures of Peter's house. You're looking at houses, you're looking at photos of the remains of the building. And the thing that's striking is just to imagine how differently it must have looked. Before it was a church, it was just a simple first century home. It had a courtyard, it had some room for animals, it had some space to prepare and cook food. Uh, if the building in Capernaum actually is Peter's house, then it tells us some things about Peter. It tells us that his fishing business was successful. And it tells us that Peter had made a good living for a large house with enough room for extended family and visitors to come and live with him. Uh, his mother-in-law is living with him, right? There's room for her. Um, we also learned something else about Peter, which I think should be a very obvious, but I like to bring it to the front. Uh, maybe, it's my, maybe it's just the fact that I'm just a wholehearted Protestant. Um, Peter was married. I just like to say that. Um, as much as the medieval church grew to eventually really prize and require celibacy of its priests and its popes, the person that they think of as the first pope, and I won't concede that, but the person they think of as the first pope was definitely not celibate. He was a married man with a family. He had a mother-in-law. I think, I think Peter is an example to us of the fact that even while Paul, Paul says he wishes that everybody could be single, um, there's no conflict between marriage and ministry. Right? It is possible for uh, a minister and to be married and to minister. Right? It is possible to be a minister and married. It is possible to be serious about the things of God and be married. Uh, in fact, I, I dare say for someone who is not called to singleness... To try to minister as if they were a single will eventually hurt themselves and it will hurt the church. So Peter's, Peter's mother-in-law lay sick inside of the building. Um, the text doesn't say she sent for Jesus. He simply comes to Peter's home and he sees her sick with a fever. Um, this is the only healing we know of where there's no explicit request for healing, no request for Jesus to come. Uh, no one calls out to him. He simply does it, right? He simply sees her and he, he heals her. Uh, maybe she's too unwell to ask for help audibly. Um, I, I've had fevers like that. Maybe you have had a fever like that as well where you just think, I'm going to lay here until I don't feel like I'm dead anymore. Um, and perhaps that's what's going on here with her. Um, the text is interesting, too. It says it describes her as rising and serving Jesus as, as soon as she's healed. You know, this seems to be a very dedicated, righteous woman, a hospitable person. Um, what is her first concern? Her first concern is to serve well in Peter's home and to show love to Jesus the best way that she knows. Um, maybe you've known these sort of personalities. Uh, I feel like 
I feel like my own grandmother was this kind of personality. Maybe you know someone like this too, but just the sort of person who is, who is eager to serve and eager to love and frustrated when they can't. Um, you could almost imagine her sadness, perhaps, of seeing Jesus come into the house and knowing she is not going to be able to get out of this bed. She's not going to be able to show hospitality to him. All she can do with this visitor in her house is lay there and hope that she gets better. And, and, and she wants to show honor, but she, she can't. She cannot do it. She can't even get out of bed. This fever is preventing her. And so she's, she's miserable and she can't move. Um, a few months back, we saw it in First Timothy where Paul tells Timothy, you know, he says, drink a little wine for your stomach. And one of the points that, that, that was made then was that we don't pursue health for its own sake. We don't pursue health simply because it helps us feel better. And boy, we just want to feel our best. Um, the point is that we pursue health for the good of others. So when we're healthy, we're able to serve. When we're not healthy, we're not able to serve. And um, Timothy was to take care of himself so that he could serve the church in Ephesus. Well, Peter's mother-in-law likewise gets healed, and her healing is not simply for the sake of feeling good, but it's so that she can serve. That's, that's, that's the purpose she sees in her healing, right? That's what she shows by getting up and serving she says, I know one thing, that I need to serve Jesus. That's why I was healed. And the text simply says that she did it. She wasn't commanded to serve. She did it. Uh, she wanted to. She rose and she served. Peter's mother-in-law. Her health matters because with her health, she can live for Jesus. She can serve Jesus. She can show hospitality. She can show that God is at work in her in her life. And in, and in your life, I want to just suggest that you make sure you're doing what you can to be healthy, but also remember why you do it. Why does your health matter? It matters because then you can be of use to the Lord. You can be of use to his people, not just simply so that you can be well, but so that you can serve well. Amen. Um, remember, Jesus cares about the body, right? That's why he heals this woman. If he didn't care for the body, he could have just looked at her and said, you're great. You are spiritually well. I have nothing else to do here. <laughs> and he could have, could have left. And he doesn't do that with, with Peter's mother-in-law. Um, we have to remember, like Jesus did, that our bodies are an essential part of the person. Uh, we need to make sure we don't think so much like, like Platonic Greeks. You know, the, the, the time of Plato, they were convinced... And Plato and his disciples were convinced that the body was the prison house of the soul, that the reason that we had a body was so that our souls could function in this world, and that when we die, we're separated from our body, and that we become purer in our death, because our bodies are bad, and our bodies drag us down. And what is Jesus showing here? He's showing that, he's saying, I'm no Platonist. Your body matters. What happens to you physically actually does matter. Um, the living... He, uh, remember Genesis 2-7, right? We are living creatures, right? The living is just as much as, as important as our soul is. Bodies are as important, are so important, we're still going to have them in the new heavens and the new earth, right? His plan is not for us to eternally be separated from our bodies. Instead, we will have the same body. Do not ask me the physics of that. We will have the same bodies, only they will be transformed, and, and Jesus' new bo Jesus's body is so important that he still has one, even right now as he ministers to us at the right hand of God. So our destiny is not to one day become disembodied floating souls. We were made to live 
an embodied existence on the earth forever because that's what human beings are. We are embodied souls. And what this means is that if we say we care about people but we ignore the body, we miss the whole person. If we, if we ignore the needs of the body, it's like we've disregarded the whole man. And it is very easy to do because we are excuse makers. We are excuse makers. I'm an excuse maker. So I would just say we need to search our hearts because often we're looking for our reason not to help. We're looking for a reason not to show mercy. And we, we could certainly be that way. I mentioned James 2.14 earlier. I want to go back to it because it's so convicting when it comes to this. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if anyone says he has faith but does not have works? And it's a rhetorical question. He says it's no good if you just have faith but no works. He says, can such faith save him? He's talking about the quality of a person's faith, right? He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So a ministry that is only focused on the soul and not to the body, says James, is a hypocritical ministry. It is a pretend ministry. It's a dead ministry. And so let me just suggest that instead of defending ourselves here, let's receive the correction and ask God, what, what areas of our life have we intentionally displaced caring for the physical needs of people and instead replaced it with what, we, what sounds like a good excuse to us. I need to minister to the soul, not the body. There is a need for correction here. Certainly for me. But second, we see that Jesus' ministry also is to the soul. Right? Jesus' ministry is a spiritual ministry. Keep going in the text. Go to, go to verse 16 and 17. It says, that evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Uh, think of what happens here. Um, Jesus just showed physical authority, right? He healed this woman's fever, and now Jesus is showing a spiritual authority. He has authority over the spiritual realm too. Uh, the text says that he casts out spirits and he healed all who were sick. But notice especially, we've, we've seen this healing ministry, and we're going to continue to see his healing ministry, but there's also this spiritual dimension that is easy to, to ignore. It's easy to downplay. Now, a couple of things, actually a couple of encouragements. Notice that these spiritual beings are cast out by Jesus. Um, they may seem to be apparently powerful, but Jesus has such authority over them that he casts them out, the text says, with a word. That's what the text says, with a word. His mastery over these spiritual beings is so complete that all he needs is to use his voice and they are totally subjugated to him. Um, it's a real contrast going on here because in the ancient world, there were professional exorcists. And they used incantations and they used ceremonies and they practically made, in fact, you could argue they completely made a performance art out of what they did. 
So here they are. They put on a big show. You know, uh, you know, your modern example would be somebody pulling out the crystal ball and wiggling their hands over it and things like that. Um, they're making a real performance out of this. Wow, this really feels authentic. Look what this guy did. And then Jesus, on the other hand, speaks. Like, that's what Jesus does. He's a very disappointing performer, right? He just, he's this total contrast to the teachers of the day when he's teaching, right? He teaches as one who has authority, but he's a contrast to the exorcist of the day who exercised without authority. Jesus has such authority that there is no need for a performance. Um, it's tempting to engage the subject of spiritual warfare at this point, but I would want to just suggest that in a few weeks, we're going to look very closely at the subject of spiritual warfare when we get to the gathering demoniac in the text. And so I'm sort of intentionally restraining that subject, and we're going to address that more in a couple of weeks. But for this week, I, I simply want us to notice Jesus's ministry go, goes beyond the physical needs. Jesus ministers to genuine, heartfelt, objective spiritual needs. Whatever the problem is that you see in someone's life, it is extremely tempting to think that the problem has a worldly answer. Um, Maybe you think, well, I know what this person's problem is. They need more money. They need more training. This person needs a better job. This person needs a better place to live. This person needs a better vehicle. Um, this person needs to go to marriage counseling. And, and all of those things could be true. You could be right about every single one of those things. But if you were to locate, but if you locate the ultimate problem there, you will miss out on the truth, which is that unless you address the deepest spiritual needs of a person, then those superficial things will just morph into different problems. Um, it's sort of like bailing water out of a boat that's full of holes. Um, Unless you actually patch the holes and address the problems, the boat's going to eventually sink. So you have to get to the bottom of it and figure out what's really going on because those other things are superficial. This person has superficial problems in their life, but it's because the deepest need hasn't been addressed. Now, I mentioned in that previous point, it's possible for Christians to be so focused on the ministry to the soul that we forget the body. Many Christians in the West make such a big deal about caring for the body that they forget the premium Jesus placed on people's spiritual needs. And I don't know which one you are. I don't know which, which side of this you need to hear the correction of. Maybe it's both. If you don't care about people at all, you need to hear both of those. Um, this is what I would suggest happened with the liberal de- denominations in America in the 20th century. They became humanitarians who forgot the gospel that they began with. Um, Jesus does not serve people as a mere do-gooder who wanted people to have better lives. His goal was to see souls united to him by faith. So when you look at the suffering servant song in, in Isaiah 54, you see that Jesus came with a goal, not ultimately of making the blind see and the lame walk. He came to heal souls. By his stripes, we were healed. That is not a physical healing that that's talking about. It's saying that he was physically struck and our souls were healed, right? He came to take our place. He came to bear our sins. He came to receive the stripes that we were supposed to receive and to address our deep spiritual condition. And so the Bible gives a balance to this. 
And if we lose the balance that, that Jesus had, then we either ignore the body or we ignore the soul and we treat the body as if it's all that matters. Both of the extremes are errors if they exclude the other. And I think I want to just show you, I want you to see it. I hope you see it in Jesus's ministry and you're going to keep seeing it throughout the Gospels that the biblical approach is to acknowledge that we are living souls. That if you ignore either, you have stopped following Jesus' example and you miss out on the person's humanity. What does God call us to do? Show mercy, indeed, but make sure that when you minister to someone that you're listening to what their spiritual needs are, that you're going deeper than just the superficial presenting symptoms, that you're looking for opportunities to tell them about the Savior and address the fact that this person is lost and without the Lord. Um, Jesus does this constantly, right? Sometimes he'll meet someone who's really sick and he'll see what they really need. And he'll say to them, in fact, we're going to see this really shortly. He's going to look at a paralyzed man and go, you need your sins forgiven. And then all the while he's like, and I'm paralyzed. And Jesus is like, your sins need to be addressed. Let's deal with your sins, right? Um, and then it, it appears that he heals the man as a proof that the forgiveness was real. Again, we'll talk about this. But isn't that interesting that seemingly he, he almost seems to have been fine with not healing the man, except that there needed to be a proof that he really was forgiven and he wanted to show everybody that it was real. That forgiveness is his priority with this guy. And, 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 and you'll meet people like that. The people you meet in life will be like that. They will be people with deep pain that can't be easily dismissed. Um, the gospel, when it comes into their life, doesn't necessarily make their situation easier. Um, it does not provide superficial answers but what it does give to this person is the thing they need more than anything else, the deep-rooted promise that can't be pulled up, right? The promise that there is a Savior who will take all of their sins and give them his righteousness by faith. See, Jesus redeems not just our soul, he also re redeems our body. And I just want to end on that note. Just think about this. I mentioned before, Jesus has a body in heaven, and his plan is for us to also have a body in heaven because in salvation, what are we reminded of? We're reminded of the resurrection of Jesus, that it means more than just spiritual conquest of the enemy and forgiveness of our sins. Uh, I went to a church years ago and I sat down and, and it was a mainline, it was a mainline church. And I sat down and I didn't have another Presbyterian church in the area to go to. So I said, well, I'm going to settle. I can't have a PCA church. I'll go to another one. And I thought I'll give them a chance. And the, the preacher got up and began to talk about John Dominic Crossan and what a great scholar he was and how all this great stuff that he had to say about Jesus. And I don't know if you know who that is. I don't particularly want you to go, go out and buy any of his books. But John Dominic Crossan believed that Jesus didn't even physically rise from the dead. He believed in what he called a spiritual resurrection. And so he said the body of Jesus after he was crucified was thrown into a ditch and was probably eaten by wild dogs, as was the custom in ancient Rome. And so there would have been no resurrection for Jesus. That, but, and yet he also wanted to say at the same time, but there was a spiritual resurrection of Jesus. Well, that sort of platonic mindset that says that the spirit is all that matters is deeply mistaken. Because Jesus was physically raised up 
Because the body matters. Jesus said, I am raised up and you will be raised up too. You will be raised up with me. You see this in Romans 8, 11, the importance of the physical resurrection that Jesus came for our bodies and our souls. Romans 8, 11, Paul says this, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through this spirit who dwells in you. In other words, we are not just talking about immaterial spiritual things when we talk about salvation. We are talking about the completion of the person where one day our bodies will be raised up and our bodies will be whole as they should have been all this time. Our bodies matter to Jesus. All of you matters to Jesus. He doesn't just care about a part of you. He cares about all of you. And he proves that not by coming to redeem part of you, but really and truly coming to rescue you, all of you, body and soul, because all of you matters to Jesus. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, if we have erred by sharing your gospel, but ignoring people's physical needs, forgive us. Would you make us faithful? Would you show us what it means to be faithful? Would you, would you keep helping us to see it in your word, especially in the gospels as we look at Jesus' ministry? Would you make us ready to minister to the whole person? But would you also protect us from being mere humanitarians who neglect the spiritual and behave as, as if all that matters is what we can see and touch? Lord Jesus, would you give us the same wisdom and understanding that you demonstrated in your earthly ministry so that we, so that we likewise would minister to others' bodies and souls. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.